Hi, I'm Evan from Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm Nicole from Toronto. I'm Jake from Chattanooga. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is Charlie Wilson from one of my favorite groups of all time, the Gap Band. I want to ask you this question about working with Snoop Dogg, and I, it's a mildly impertinent question, but um, I hope you'll forgive me for asking it. But you're clean and sober 17 years. Snoop Dogg is probably the most famously not clean and sober person in yeah. America. Yeah. <laughs> so how does yeah. that work? Well, my wife uh, went to him one day and said, Snoop, I, I don't want everybody out here smoking around my husband. He was looking at her. My, Snoop looked at her like, oh, <laughs> uh, who is this lady? And uh, Is she aware that I'm Snoop Dogg? Yeah, dog? yeah. So she told him that they couldn't smoke around him, and, and, and everybody put their stuff out. So when I came, nobody was smoking. And he kept. she kept on him, all of them. And then when they come, they say, well, here come Uncle Charlie. Here come Uncle Charlie and Auntie. So everybody would take out running. They'd spraying stuff. And, <laughs> you know, we could tell that somebody was smoking in there. And he, when I walk in, he said, what me? It <laughs> wasn't me. And so, I mean, it was like that. And then I made him. I, I asked him. I had a long conversation with him. I said, man, you're going to have to quit smoking weed. And he did for like a year. It's bullseye. <laughs> Charlie Wilson made hits in the 80s as the front man of the Gap Band. In the 90s, he was homeless and drug addicted in the streets of Los Angeles. He got clean 17 years ago and somehow, improbably, restarted his career. In fact, in middle age, he started making hits again. And everybody was like looking at me like I was kind of crazy. It's like, at this age, come on, man. You're not serious, are you? I was like, I did not finish doing what I was doing. Charlie Wilson will receive the BET Lifetime Achievement Award this month. Plus, stand-up comedy from The Daily Show's Al Madrigal. And you'll find out which Mountain Goat song you should listen to immediately. All that coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Charlie Wilson is a remarkable singer, and he has a remarkable story to tell. He started the Gap Band with his brothers in the late 1960s, but it was 10 years and three albums before they broke through as a commercial success. Their music combined the heavy bottom of funk with Wilson's easy, airy tenor and helped bridge the gap between the urban sound of the 1970s and the 1980s. Here's a bit of one of their greatest hits from 1981, Burn Rubber. string of hits from the 1970s through the mid-1980s. But in the mid-80s, things started to go off the rails. By the early 90s, Charlie Wilson was living on the streets in Los Angeles. He got sober in the mid-1990s and built a new bridge between the R&B of the 70s and 80s and the world of hip-hop. He's had hits with artists like Snoop Dogg and Kanye West and has had his own career resurgence as a solo artist. Here's his smash hit from 2005, the R. Kelly-produced Charlie, last name Wilson. Hey girl, how you doing? My name is Charlie. Last name Wilson. I was wondering if I could take you out, take you out, you a good time, invite you to my house. Here is my number, girl. You can call me and don't forget it, babe. The name is Charlie. 
With all of this fortune, what am I doing single? Sometimes I tell myself, man, get out and mingle. You don't have to be alone, you need someone to love. But being famous, sometimes it's hard to find someone to trust. But to hell with that this time, I'm gonna treat myself. Being in love is good for you. It's time to share this fortune and fame with someone else. Now that I'm in this club, I might as well. Hey girl, how you doing? How you doing? My name is John. Charlie Wilson's new album is called Love Charlie. Charlie Wilson, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you? I got a bit of a cold, but I'm good. You know what I'm saying? So if I get to coughing, you guys will have to mute mute the microphone. Well, the good news is we're locked in this tiny box together. Yeah. So we're going to be sharing whatever illness you brought in here. Um, so you grew up in Tulsa, and your dad was a Pentecostal preacher, right? Yes, yes. So what was his church service like? Wow, very entertaining, very powerful. The messages were incredible. People were getting uh, saved and people were getting sanctified. And Did he have a church? Was he on the road? What my was... father was a traveling evangelist. However, he was he pastored a couple of churches, you know, as when I was coming up as a kid. And I, I would have to sing before he preached. So I was a little boy, three, four years old. So you can imagine this three, four-year-old kid, you know lighting up the church right before he preached, and <laughs> it was already warmed up by the time he got to it. So, Were your brothers also playing? Were they playing as well? Yeah, my brothers, my, my brother, it was my brother, oldest brother, and my, my oldest sister, so it was three of us. What what songs were you singing? I was a song, I remember one uh, one song called When When You Ring Those Golden Bells, Ding Dong, and I used to be out there, Ding Dong. I was all up and down the hall, all, all down the aisles, and people would just... Oh, my gosh. It was going crazy. I just remember the first song I think my mom taught me because my mom was played piano for us. And she was the state minister of music and all of that. And she started all the choirs and all of that. So it was kind of cool. How much older was your older brother? He's five years older than me. When did the three of you start playing together? Well, I got a little older and, and I was had my own band. Those band we grew up to guys. Those guys grew up with me and. I, I went, we were in high school by that time and, and have really gotten really, really good. And and we started just taking all of the north side of Tulsa, just following us around and from club to club or whatever. And he was playing with his band and club. And finally, they was looking up and wasn't nobody coming to see him. And he was coming <laughs> to see me. <laughs> and he sort of like, said, you got to get out of this band, dude. You're coming over here with me. I was like, no, I'm not. He said, oh, yes, you are. So we had a little bid war there going on, you know. We wasn't making that much money, you know. He offered me twenty five dollars or something. I forgot what it was. And <laughs> I was making about twelve. One night, that his bass player quit, and my younger brother, he was only like thirteen years old. And I was like, Robert can play, and he's like, Robert who? I was like, our brother Robert. <laughs> he's like, Robert Lynn. I was like, yeah, he can play. And he's like, man, I was Robert twelve or thirteen. I said thirteen. I said, but he can play, and so. We went one night to beg my mom to let him out the house, and 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 uh, she was really upset because I mean I was first it was Ryan, my oldest brother Ryan, and then I was you know sneaking off a line time. I was going to my friends and stay all night, and was sneaking and playing in the clubs and and that whole bit. And finally, um, um, it it uh, she let him go, and he just the first set. I just say just. Let the song go by once, one time around when you hear it, you know, just come on in. And he, he was real quick with it, and that's how he played the set. Didn't I, make no mistakes. I can't imagine it with your father preacher, and you're not even allowed to listen to the radio yeah. in the house, what it was like for the three of you guys, one of whom was I had a sister too. 13 years old. <laughs> The four of you guys then out yeah. out playing shows in clubs. Oh, yeah. My, my father was sort of like... You know, um, he didn't like the idea that we was probably playing clubs, but um, he was like, I'll let him go and do the music because, you know, his nephew was Lord Fulson. So Lord Fulson was a big blues singer. And so we, we used to see him come to the house all the time and and um, with all them shiny clothes, suits on them, silk, uh, shark skin suits and those big shiny Cadillac cars and his hair was... You know, slicked, and it was oh wow! It's like one day I want to be like that. 
Yeah, it's crazy. So we're talking about what, like that, towards the end of the '60s here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So I was a little, we was a little, I was a little guy. So. What did you think this band was going to be? Were you working towards becoming national music stars, or did you think that you were going to be working musicians and just play clubs? And I, I really didn't have a clue that what that it would turn out to be what it was. No, I didn't have a clue until one day I met Stevie Wonder. And when I met Stevie Wonder, and we sit down at the piano together, and um. And even prior prior to that, when I was in college, uh, I had met Donny Hathaway at a col- at um, Black Expo '71, and and it was Quincy Jones and all of these big stars, jazz and everybody. And because we had work, they had workshops, and we was I was in college, so we was allowed to our school, you know, was allowed to go and um, in Chicago. And man, it was just great. And and when I got a chance to meet those guys and rub elbows, I was like. This is what I'm gonna do. I know it. I met Stevie Wonder. I was like, I sit down with him, and and he told me, "You have a pretty nice voice." I was like, "Yes, I'm gonna make it big." <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Charlie Wilson formed the Gap Band with his brothers Ronnie and Robert in the late 1960s. They made some epic jams, like my personal favorite, "You Dropped a Bomb on Me." Later, Wilson became a successful solo artist. His newest record is called Love, Charlie. I want to play a song from uh, the Gap Band's second album mm. from 1977. And this, this album, like your first one, was not a hit. Yeah. Um, but it's a, really, it's a really good album. I hadn't, I hadn't listened to those two records before. They're sort of hard to get. Um, this song is called Out of the Blue, Can You Feel It? It actually reminds me a lot of the uh, later recordings, sort of mid-70s recordings of Sly Stone. Yeah. He was one of my idols as well. Um, got a chance to meet him for my for the first time. Uh, I remember um, we we opened a show for him. It got bad, and it was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He had came, and, and he came. Yeah, he came, and, and he he. Uh, <laughs> that was not a given. That was high stuff. <laughs> yeah, and so he was there, and 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 I remember Bubba and those guys. I guess the security at that time kicked air, police everybody out of the building. I, I, I mean, off the stage and everything. And as I was getting ready, I was so nervous because I wanted to meet him. Um, and he says, "Not you, not you, Charles. Stay right there." So I, 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 he let me have the seat on the stage. I was the only one on the stage, and the, his brothers came up and they, 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 they start tooling up, and that boom, got, ding, 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 boom, Oh my gosh, they was tuning up and playing the funk. And then he just came on and just, it was just wrecked the place. And when he came off the stage, he walked straight up to me, knees to knees, and just throwed his head back like Stevie Wonder. And I was looking at him like, and I was, he had his eyes looking up, but he was smiling and looked down at me and then he walked off. And I threw my hand up and he gave him like five and just kept walking. But I was the only one allowed to the stage and. And ever since then, we've been kind of, you know, we kind of close. And, and he remembered the time when, when I was the first time. And, and uh, we, we were kind of close late, later on in the years. And um, and he sent a message to me, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, maybe a year ago, that he was so proud of me. And, and, and uh, he said, good work and keep going. Don't ever stop. And, you know, it was kind of crazy. I thought that was cool. One of the things that I think is really interesting about the records that the Gap Band made in the late 1970s and early 1980s mm-hmm. is that a, a lot of those folks that you were talking about, a lot of the generation that was even just five years older than you were mm-hmm. or five years deeper in than you were, mm-hmm. 
were hearing nothing but disco on the radio and not really sure what to do with that aesthetically. I mean, it's the period when James Brown cut the original disco Godfather. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you right. know, you guys were one of a very small number of groups who managed to find a way to retain um, the heaviness of funk mm -hmm. and still make hits mm -hmm. in the disco era and after the disco era. Yeah. Well, you know, what what was going on at that time, like I said, disco was going on, and we tried. I mean, we was made to try to do a disco record, and it just wasn't in us to, to make disco music. And we tried the Baby Baka Boogie or whatever that thing was. I, come on and boogie with me. Come on, boogie. Come on, boogie with me. Boogie. I, I was like, this is the most ridiculous thing that we're ever <laughs> trying to do. I was so upset, you know. At the executive at that time, man, and and I was like, dude, this is not going to work for us because we weren't cut out for that. Plus, I mean, I knew it was just a fad and it was going to one day go out. And so we were trying to cut music like what was in our soul and it was in our heart. And we went across the beat with, and they were doing, so we went to that groove, you know. And uh, and everybody was looking at us like we were crazy, like that is not going to work. I said, well, that's what we cut, and it and it worked. Well, let's take a listen to uh, one of your first big singles from 1979, the absolute height of disco. Mm -hmm. um, this is I don't believe you want to get up and dance, uh, aka oops upside your head. Yeah. That song still sounds great now, which which can't be said about a lot of a lot of disco records. <laughs> but you said that you said something very interesting that I hope maybe you can expand on, which is that one of the central characteristics of disco was what they call the four on the floor, right? Mm -hmm. This this the basic beat is it's just donk 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 like house a sort of uninflected um uh, uninflected uh beat mm -hmm. um which makes it easy to blend records yes you know you can lead one thing into the next thing which Absolutely. was which was new then mm -hmm. and um you know is is easy and fun to dance to mm -hmm. um but it's not uh it's not that funky no um and so you you had to sort of actively choose not to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, we would have been labeled at that time as being like a disco band if we'd have put four on the floor like that. And although some of the like this one had like, it was four on the floor, but we had to across, you know, that crossed it, so it made it feel. So and then all the percussion went with it. It didn't just seem like it was something, you know. And then we didn't put the tempo so fast like everybody else had it. So you couldn't mix in it. It sounded more like a funky record. Kind of crazy. But that's how we was wanted to do it. And uh, and then in live, it always felt good. We could do just do just about anything with that beat like that. Anything. We can go into any in, in, in and out of anything. We made up so much stuff with that with that beat. And a lot of records was born from that beat on stage. 
Well, I mean, one of the fun things about that record is that you you know it's it's sort of like uh, it, it's sort of like a P funk record where George Clinton, yeah. by the time P funk was at its peak, was not much of a singer, yeah. but he was the, still sort of the front man, and so he just saying he was just saying different stuff and having a good time and telling other people to sing. And- Absolutely, and, that, and again, that we we were we were on the road with George Clinton as well during all of that time, and so the vibe and the, the beat and all of that that feel definitely George had an influence on 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 some of that as well you know because we was like we was like it was funkin back in them days and so and if you wasn't nowhere near that pocket then you guess what you was doing something totally different and um we was just happy that we could we could be around people who had so much uh influence and so much power you know um in song and in words and we could be right there with them to share some of that and it was great on the road with those guys It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Charlie Wilson. His group, The Gap Band, released a bunch of funk and R&B hits before Wilson's addiction problems threw him off track. I want to play one of my um, favorite Gap Band records, and just in general, one of my favorite records. Uh, This is from 1982. It's You Dropped a Bomb on Me. This song has this mm-hmm. amazing uh, bass sound, and I think it's the sort of the bass sound that um, uh, that typified a lot of your dance records in the early '80s. Absolutely. Is that a is, is that a keyboard? It's a Moog bass, yes. So it, I mean, it was me, and I just like those grooves used to come like you know I'll just turn that Moog on and, and dial up a sound and. And just go for the beat. Uh, go for the uh, the the, um, the syncopation parts uh, to figure out the bass pop, bass sound, a bass bass part. And then my younger brother Robert, and he would just stack, and and uh, some of that sound was between my bass and his bass, and um, and we just build from there, and things would would just come naturally, you know. So, like I said, that a lot of those records and the way they were played. The way they, the window they the way they ended up was because it ignited from something from either sound check, you know, or before a show or after a show, or while doing a show was going on, and we would just go from something into something else, and then we tape everything that we did and and go home and listen to, to some of those tapes and go in the studio and 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 recut some of those things that we was doing live. I love that. I love the intro of that song. Is that mm-hmm. you playing that little uh, the that organ little thing? thing. The, yeah. Yes. Is that you laughing? Yeah. <laughs> Why'd you leave that in? <clears throat> well, it's just um, I think somebody was saying something that made me laugh. First of all, and and uh, and I was just giggling, and before it came, and they just left it. <laughs> it's such a great it's such a great way to drop someone into that song because mm-hmm. it's a, the little organ thing is it's almost dissonant. I mean, it's like it's a little bit. Um, it's just a little bit funky, you know what I mean? Yeah, it was a, it was it, it was a farfisa, you know, back in those days, those old farfisa organs, and, and I was just trying to get a sound that nobody else had when I played organ because B three is is what I used to play, and so that wouldn't that wouldn't really you know cut the sound that that I was looking for. It needed to be kind of cheesy sounding, and then so it was like the farfisa. It's kind of a weird deal. I don't know if you know what that is. It's just a small organ, and and the volume pedal was on the leg. You could you turn you push your leg to the left, and that gave it the volume. And you know, <laughs> so it was different. I want to ask you a little bit about your um uh about your addiction history, and mm-hmm. and if there's anything you don't want to talk about, just it's just okay. let me know. Um, when did your when did your drinking and and using start to become a problem in your life? Well, I just say it like this. As things started sour at my record company, because the industry didn't have anything to do with it, <laughs> you had a you had a big problem with your with your manager and your. There you go. So it, as things began to start crumbling there, uh, it was um, it just 
from then it just didn't work anymore. As much as I tried to uh, band-aid things up, things were getting worse and worse. And so after I've seen that it just was not working and uh, you had all of your the, the, the basketball, the goal and everything on your court, then I just said, okay, well, there was no use, no more use for me. And, and, um, and so drugs were available and alcohol was available and, and there I was. And, and I was there for a, a long time and it was ended up um, on the streets Ended up uh, homeless, and uh, it's crazy. And at that time, I was like, well, I don't have anything anyway. And it just was worse. Things got worse and worse. And, you know, it was like people that used to see me on the streets or seen me somewhere, and they was like, yo, 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 Charlie, I'm on my way to the street. Where you been? Where you Man, I've been in that studio all night, so I would always have to. I would always lie, and 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 because uh, I would hardly never go out in the daytime. You know, I would be somewhere at nighttime. Is when I would move around, and on you know, nobody really could see me that way, except for the people that knew I was out there. I mean, uh, that's uh, that's one of the things that sounds m- most painful to me about mm-hmm. your experience on the streets was that. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, because you didn't want people to s- see you mm-hmm. were in that position, um, you know, you had to project that that you weren't that when you saw people that you knew from your from your past life, mm-hmm. and um, and couldn't for that reason, you know, you couldn't among other things ask for their help. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I couldn't very well say anything to anybody about what it was and why I was looking like I was looking. I mean, because if anybody know, you know, that a guy was is is either thugged out or drugged out or drunk or tore up, or they could look at my my the way I was dressed and the way I looked, knew it was this guy hasn't been had a meal or something. They would have to see something was wrong with me and and. um no, I couldn't tell anybody that I really didn't have anywhere to go uh, because then I think that people probably would have thought that I was either lying or I was trying to get something out of them, you know. So I I just remain, you know, if I seen somebody accidentally, then I was I just immediately started humming or act like I was on my way somewhere. I'm going back to the studio. I'm, I'm had sleep in four days. I'm on my way back to the studio. And it's like, wow, what you working on? And I said, well, I'm working on something new right now, so i got to get going. I'll talk at you later. So it was like that. Were you scared? I mean, like physically scared? Always. You know, I kept a prayer in me, though, you know, because I asked God not to let the devil kill me out and until I got back to uh, what it was I really loved to do, you know, because I felt myself again really slipping of not wanting to play anymore or you know when you don't if you're not looking for a piano or something then you're losing grip and because every time I was went somewhere if I seen a piano I would sit down and go at it you know so and when you didn't when you didn't want to play anymore that's you're being robbed you're being robbed Stick around after a break, hear about Charlie Wilson's career resurgence. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Production of Bullseye is supported in part by Amazon Publishing with American Spirit, the debut novel from Dan Kennedy about a 40-something man and his comedic vision quest along the edges of modern American living. Available now. It's summer now. And come September, you're going to wish that you stretched it out just a little bit longer. Well, problem solved. Hop on a boat with Mark Marin, John Hodgman, Dan Deacon, Jonah Ray, Kristen Shaw, Eugene Merman, and a ton of other comedians and musicians. It's the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, September 13th through 16th. Set sail from Miami into the Bahamas for three nights of music, comedy, 
And yes, of course, shuffleboard. Book your tickets now at BoatParty.biz. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival is sponsored by Splitsider.com, KCRW, and MailChimp. I'll see you on the high seas. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Charlie Wilson. We've been talking about the addiction problems that drove his career with the Gap Band off the rails. You were on the streets for uh, about two years. Yes. Um, and that's a, that's a long time to be on the street. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, in some ways, that is an amount of time that's kind of, you know, by the end of that, you were you were at your last chance to get yourself out of that. Hmm. Um. So what was it that gave you the strength to think of a different future for yourself rather than just? You know, I I looked, I was just really sick and tired being sick and tired, man. And I looked, I was looking around and, and I was seeing the same people and the people that I was seeing, I was like, man, I do not need to be down here. And I, I started admitting that this is real crazy here. I don't have no business here. I was not raised like this. My father's a preacher. And just, I was towing around with, with death so many times with the wrong people. And and so one day, my a cousin of mine, she came and saw me, and she was looking real good, and we used to get high together. And, and she was like, cuz, and she started crying. And, and that right there knew I hadn't seen myself and so I didn't, you know, look in the mirrors and things. I just didn't ever see myself. So I could, I knew I was really, really thin because the clothes I had on, it was just like, was way too big, you know. And when they used to fit really, really tight. And so, um, so she cried and she asked me, dude, you got to come in. I said, where you been? Because give me a hit. Give me something. She's like, I've been sober three years. I was like, three years? She was like, yeah. She, she, she was crying. I was like, Wow. She said, you have to come in. I'm a, I work at this rehabilitation center. I was like, for real? Man, I, I, I was looking at her, and she just looked brand new. And at that moment, I wanted to look brand new because I did not look good at all. She told me where this place was, and they finally got me in the place. And uh, it was only a 28-day program. Were you serious from the start? No. No, not at all. It took me 14 days to to get it, to get it, to to understand, to get in touch with my own feelings, and uh, and then I broke down, and then after that, so I really only had 14 days to start, and um, and I'm and and um, met this lady who was uh, who was was the uh, the doctor, and. Um, and she was the coordinator of the of the rehab, and um, and she was like, uh, she would always try to walk and come to my room and and see if I was all right and why was I sleeping so much and and wasn't participating in the classes and all of this stuff. And she was really trying to give me a hand. And um, and then one day she, we got close to graduating, and um, she asked me one day, "Well, what are you going to do when you get out?" And then I broke the store crowd, and I told her I didn't have nowhere to go. And then uh, she's like, really? She said, you're doing pretty good in this program now. And she said, let me see if I can help you get yourself, yourself together. And uh, I think two, three days before I graduated, she took me out on the pass and and um, looked for a house for me and, and all of that and and bought furniture the next time. And, and then when I graduated, I went straight from the rehab to that house with furniture and everything, and um, it was a nice, really nice for this lady to do that for me. And I was, I, I was, then I got really nervous about being there by myself. And then, um, so one day I just asked this lady to marry me, and uh, <laughs> and she, uh, <laughs> she was looking at me like I was crazy. What? Excuse me, I don't think so. But I finally talked her into it, and. Uh, 
We've been together for almost 19 years now. Every day single, every single day, you know. Um, we go everywhere except for the public bathrooms. <laughs> yeah. When did you decide that you were going to make a new career for yourself in music? Well, the first year, she said, um, we started, she started rehabbing, trying to figure out what happened. Um, who's the, who's the, was these people that was the agents? And, and she just, and I showed her where the building was, and she just went up in there and just caused all kind of havoc. <laughs> <laughs> Made them open up their books and all. She just called them all. She said, oh, no, y'all double dipping and y'all doing this. And she just freaked everybody out. And it was like, oh, who's this lady? And uh, she just busted everybody. She's like, oh, no, he's not, he's not going to be here no more. And um, she started turning everything around. And and then um, then we got a management, got management. And, and uh, the management came in. And, again, another great ass, asset to us. Uh, making sure we got all the I's dotted and all the T's were crossed. And they said, let's just try to go get this solo career. And everybody was like, was like looking at me like I was kind of crazy. It's like at this age, come on, man, you know, you're not serious. Sorry. I was like, I did not finish do what I was doing. I didn't get a chance to finish at all. So, so we, we, we look, we started um, looking for deals for Charlie Wilson. And then we stumbled upon R. Kelly R. Kelly was just like well, it was Snoop Dogg first, of course. Snoop Dogg. Well, tell me, tell me how you met Snoop Dogg. It was one of my background singers that used to sing with us. Val Young. She was doing a lot of work with Snoop Dogg and the Tupac and all of that other stuff. And they, they used to say, you don't know Charlie Wilson, and and uh, and you know, really messing with her. And uh, anyway, she came and told me that they would like for me to come and and uh, sing sing with them. And, and I just thought, again, Val was just, you know, everybody teases her about stuff. And you know, I was like, ah, you don't know no Snoop Dogg. And they was telling her, <laughs> you don't know. You don't know no Charlie Wilson. So, <laughs> you know, it was back and forth. And I finally ended up going um, down to the studio. And and Snoop was like, he had told me he saw me one time. And he said, man, I cried in my car. And uh, and, um, and so we, we we started singing together, and from there it was just uh, just a beautiful thing, man. We did album after album after album with him, and um, one day was I was in the studio, and and uh, Tupac, he must have just finished saying my word, cause when I opened the door, he just lost his mind, and everybody started hollering because he said, "I just spoke your name." Five seconds ago, if I had Charlie Wilson in this room, I would have him saying this. And he was just finishing that phrase. And I opened the door and everybody started running different, all kinds of different ways in there. He was screaming, hollering. And then um, and he wanted me to sing. He had flipped one of our gap band, the bass lines, and he wanted me to sing it, sing the hook and all of that. And and I was there to do a session with Snoop, and um, and I just couldn't be singing with Tupac if Snoop would have came to the building. That wouldn't, that wouldn't, that's not how you do things. And so I said, as soon as I finish doing this session with Snoop, I'll come back over. So I went in there with Snoop, and uh, we was just working all night. And then time, everybody, time, every time someone knocked on the door, he just turned the music up loud. <laughs> I want to play, um, you sang on a, a a big hit for Snoop, um, Beautiful. It was produced by uh, Pharrell of the Neptunes. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a, a remix. It's a mixtape only track, but it's a remix where you, where you sing the lead vocal. Mm-hmm. And I want to play a little bit of that. Okay. Girl, let's get this straight. No, I just can't wait. Don't you know? think has led you as a man in your in your 50s now 60 to to push so hard to have this career because it's not something that somebody is going to give you no I, I just you know when I decided I wanted to do this I knew that the doors were going to be closed and I knew after I got started and if I started singing with some of the other um you know artists that was quite younger than me and and they were calling on me all the time. And and so my voice was still relevant, and I knew that it was relevant. And I knew that 
I wasn't time locked like I around like just about everybody else. And when I came through the door with my brothers, I knew just about everybody else was time locked and just didn't couldn't get out. And I knew that was a plus for me. And um, and by me hanging out in the hip hop community, um, I knew I could get something that nobody else could do. I knew, could get you know, and that was recognition and 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 the, the chance to sing on records that I knew was going to be number ones. And um, and after Snoop, then everybody started calling. It was just, it was incredible. And it's been like that all the way up until now. I just left Paris with Kanye West. It's just incredible, you know, the life I lead. I, I want to um, I, I want to close with a song from your new album, which is called Love Charlie. Mm-hmm. Um, this song's called If I Believe. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about it before I play it. If I Believe, you know, I, my whole life and my whole career, it was a roller coaster, and I just, as I thought back, and I was like, I think I forgot to thank God, and I think I forgot to give Him the praise, and um, and I said I need, because I had been praying so much to not ask Him not to let something happen to me, but at the same time, I didn't think it was fair for me to Him because I wasn't giving anything back to Him, so. I thought that this would be a, just a great opportunity for me to let people know that the sun don't shine without him. There's no twinkle, twinkle little stars without him. There's none of that. Because if you just look at my whole life and, and where I am now, and you look and say, well, where's everybody else that came along when he came along? They're not making records, especially not number one records. If they are making records, they're not number one records. And when people told me that I couldn't do it, and I've already had like eight or nine, you know, Come on, man. It's got to be definitely the man that was telling me that I couldn't do it. He is not the one who got me where I am. That would have to be God. So if I believe, I can do anything. Well, let's take a listen to If I Believe from uh, Charlie Wilson's most recent record, Love Charlie. Charlie, thank you so much for being on Bullseye. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. You're welcome. My life is a gift from you. Blessed from heaven, that's for sure So every day I live, give thanks to you Oh, I haven't been perfect, and that's okay And you still show love my way, yeah Please don't leave me stay Cause I know the sun doesn't shine The rain doesn't fall And there wouldn't be a twinkle, twinkle little star And just like we have winter, spring, and summer, fall I can always count on you Because you never let me down You've always been around for me And my trust for you Stick around. After a break, we'll have stand-up comedy from Al Madrigal, culture picks from Boing Boing's Mark Frauenfelder, and I'll tell you about a mountain goat song you should go and listen to immediately. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm Jordan Morris. We host the podcast Jordan, Jesse, Go. It's 90 minutes or so of free-flowing conversation about feelings and momentous occasions and moments of shame and also a light sprinkling of almost unspeakable vulgarity. Every week we welcome a great guest from the world of film, television, or comedy to have a surprising conversation with us, uh, something you're definitely not going to hear anywhere else. Yeah, a very intimate conversation. (laughs) So if you want to hear us talk to some of your favorite comedians about things that aren't comedy or their latest project, uh, tune in to Jordan Jesse Go every week at MaximumFun.org or in iTunes. We're your best friends in your podcast ears. Mm Mm-hmm. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by our favorite critics to recommend stuff worth your time. This week, we're joined by our friend Mark Frauenfelder from BoingBoing.net. Hey, Mark, how you doing? I'm doing great, Jesse. Thanks. I am utterly charmed by this comic recommendation that you've sent me, uh, a book called Good Dog by Graham Chafee. Uh, Tell me a little bit about it. 
Oh, yeah, this is a wonderful graphic novel, and it's actually for all ages, which is kind of rare in the graphic novel world. It's by Graham Chaffee, like you said, and it's a, a fantastic black-and-white 80-page story about a stray dog's uh, uh, travelings. If you remember that, that movie Benji from the 70s, this is like a much better flip side of the Benji coin. Chaffee did a remarkable job of getting inside a dog's head. Even though none of us know what it would be like to be a dog, he makes it believable, which I think is really important. Um, the dogs can talk to other dogs, so we see the word balloons from them. The dogs can talk to chickens and other animals. But it's not a funny animal comic. The, the uh, drawings are done in a, a really nice kind of black-and-white kind of old-fashioned style uh, that's very accessible. Let's talk about a game for iPhone and iPad called Super Duroc. Um, this is apparently uh, an electronic version of a Russian card game that I wasn't familiar with. Can you kind of outline it briefly for us? Yeah, sure. Um, my, uh, my grandmother is Russian. She never told me about this game, but I did hear her from time to time use the word Durak to describe someone that she had utter contempt for. And the word Durak means idiot, but even worse than an idiot. It's just like the lowest, most despicable kind of idiot. And leave it to the Russians to have a card game called Durak. Um, it's a traditional card game. They play it a lot. And with another fine Russian touch, there are no winners in the game of Durak. There is only one loser. <laughs> and so uh, it's got, uh, a, a, like, like a lot of card games, there's a trump card. People throw out cards. There's attacking and defending. And another fine Russian touch is that there is one defender and one attacker, but all the other players can join in and attack the defender so that they get bullied and uh, have to fight against all the other players at the same time. But what I, what I really like the best about it is that it taught me how to play the game so that we can now play it at home with a regular deck of cards where it's more fun doing it that way. But it's an excellent tutor and introduction to this, this wonderful Russian card game of humiliation and, and uh, degradation. <laughs> Mark Frauenfelder from BoingBoing.net recommends Super Duroc for iPhone and iPad and Good Dog by Graham Chafee. Like me, comedian Al Madrigal lives in East Los Angeles. And when you live in East L.A., you quickly get to know a very specific subculture. So... Streetwise guy, middle-aged, hair graying at the temple, khakis pressed, single tear tattooed at the corner of his eye, six-year-old child on his arm. Al's got a name for this guy. Cholo Soccer Dad. <laughs> They're everywhere. I, didn't, I had no idea. So we're down in Los Angeles, and we take my son to his first practice of Mighty Mites football. Five- and six-year-olds playing flag football. It's adorable. When out of the corner of my eye, I'm there with the whole family, I see a cholo coming straight for us. Everybody, close your eyes and imagine you're the scariest Mexican gang member. That guy's walking right for us. Now, I'm using cholo a lot, and I'm not sure if anyone's traveling or from out of town. Um, a cholo is a Latino gentleman that you may have seen with white socks pulled all the way up, plaid shorts to meet the white socks. White t-shirt, oversized, very similar to a Catholic schoolgirl's uniform. It's a lot scarier. I'm not sure if you've seen the movie uh, Training Day with Denzel Washington. That's cholo heavy. Right, have you ever watched the Prison Channel, a.k.a. Nat Geo? There's a lot of cholos in that. I think you're going to tune in and see some pig meat. Now, it's MS-13 shanking people by the handball court. Maybe some neck tattoos, gold chain. I'm not sure if anybody wants to stand up and make this easier. <laughs> Shaved head, mustache. Seen yourself a cholo. You're not cholo-y. You're like cholo-adjacent. Uh, you're like uh, 
sure you're friends with some cholos, but with a V-neck T-shirt like that, I'm not too worried. Uh, so uh, <laughs> he's got a Caesar. I'm sure you know some, but I'm not. I don't feel threatened. Anyway, guys coming right at us. Now, me and my wife have been together for about 12 years at this point. Married almost about that long. Oh, yeah, please, don't clap. Don't, don't clap for her ass. <laughs> me and my wife are in sync. I know everything about this woman. I know her favorite everything. When we go to Target, we don't shop. We run plays, right? <laughs> She knows exactly what I'm thinking, and she is right. I do think everyone in her family lacks ambition and will be a drain on us financially at some point. We have eye signals for stuff, hand signals for stuff. It's incredible. For example, if my wife has too much to drink at a party, I don't have to say anything. She starts yapping too much. I get to just go like this. Toot, toot, toot. Three little discreet leg squeezes under the table. She knows that means put a sock in it, Trunky. Time for you to wrap it up. <laughs> Somebody didn't have dinner like I suggested. Now you're spouting off at the mouth, divulging all the family secrets. You need to pipe down or we got to go. <laughs> and she's cool with it. That's the best part. She's like, was I talking too much? Thank you. And it works for me. So I rubbed the back of my wife's thumb. She knows that means cholo, three o'clock. Look alive. <laughs> He's coming right at us, like I said. A lot of neck tattoos. I'm trying to decipher them on the fly. But I didn't watch Prison Break or Oz. They all mean something, right? And so I'm going, why is the rabbit crying? What does that mean? He did something to a rabbit. Me and my wife held each other for a little bit, thinking, okay, we had a good run, baby. Now we're going to die. The guy comes up. Turns out he's our son's coach. No. He goes, hey, everybody, my name's Coach Frankie. But you can call me Rascal. I, oh. See, honey, we're not going to die. Coach Rascal's here. It's going to be fine. He then presents us with a snack list. When your child is in any sport, the team mom, or in this case, a very scary Mexican gang member, has prepared a document to determine what family is responsible for snack on any given game day. He's laid his out perfectly in Microsoft Word tables. He left justified all of his texts. He didn't go with a gothic cholo font like you'd expect him to. He used Arial like we all should. He centered his header. He imported some clip art. And he was very proud of it. So we found ourselves... He would, I brought a snack list! Check it out, my snugglies. <laughs> so me and my wife found ourselves in that great couple moment where you're holding hands, trying not to laugh at somebody right in front of you, doing the Morse code hand squeeze, going, Cholo made a snack list, Cholo made a snack list. Don't laugh at the Cholo. Cholo made a Cholo. Oh, my God. Cholo made a snack list. So proud of it. Now, if you're a young couple doing this for the first time, this snack thing, and you have kids in any sport, you want to go with the beginning of the season when expectations are low. You bring some Teddy Grahams, some Capri Suns, fruit, you brown bag it. Want to go the extra mile? Freeze a Go-Gurt. They love that. What happens is you wait too long, then in the middle of the season, some with disposable income brings Happy Meals, ruins it for the rest of the families yet to go. Then by the end of the season, you're forced to bring pizza, a DJ, and a stripper. And everybody's still complaining. They're like, are these songs fast to you? She seems older. So he's made a snack list. He's he's also the worst coach ever, but you can't do anything about it. He's so intimidating. He actually said this to the kids. They're five and six years old. When they get the football, they run in the wrong direction. They tackle each other. If there's a dog, they chase the dog. They're idiots. And he says, this is a quote, you guys got to pay attention or you're going to have bad dreams. (laughs) Which is not in the John Wooden coaching pyramid. I think. Leaving all the parents on the sideline going, did he say? 
Because I have a hard enough time getting that guy to sleep as it is. I don't need Coach Rascal giving him cholo night terrors. Then my wife gives me one of these. You know this? You should know it. A hand squeeze with a squint and a head nod. Which means get in there and say something. Time for you to man up. Or I'm going to say something. And there's a counter move to that. I squeezed her hand even a little bit harder. Looked her in the eyes and said, we're not saying (laughs) You let Coach Rascal conduct his business, so we're going to find out why the rabbit's crying. And I don't want to find out why the rabbit's crying. I don't want to find out. Al Madrigal from his new stand-up comedy album and special, Why is the Rabbit Crying? You can catch him performing stand-up in Nashville in August and then New York City in September. You can also, of course, see him as the senior Latino correspondent on The Daily Show. For more details, visit almadrigal.com. We like to close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. John Darnielle is the frontman of a band called The Mountain Goats. Actually, sometimes he is the band, The Mountain Goats, like when it's just him playing a guitar and singing into a cassette recorder. That's how he recorded a song that I think about all the time, called The Best Ever Death Metal Band Out of Denton. It's about two guys in their high school band. Darnielle's performance, like the recording, is plain. I mean, it's a, it's a plain song. And I find myself crying almost every time I hear it. gift of adolescence is the freedom that self-regard gives us. We can have a dream and follow it without thinking about why we're not good enough or why someone else's dream is more important than ours or why we should just get a good job with the city and settle down already. We can be in love with someone stupid, jump off a waterfall. We feel deeply without guilt. Jeff and Cyrus believed in their hearts. They were headed for stage lights and lear jets and fortune and fame. So in script that made prominent use of a pentagram They stenciled their drum heads and guitars with their names And this was how Cyrus got sent to the school Where they told him he'd never be famous And this was why Jeff, in the letters he'd write to his friend Helped develop a plan to get even When you punish a person for dreaming his dream Don't expect him to thank or forgive you the best ever death metal band out of Denton Will in time both outpace and outlive you Hail Satan Hail Satan Tonight Hail Satan Hail, hail So it's irrelevant if the death metal band is good Or if their choices go right Or even if they ever find a name They believe in something, they feel something, and they will follow it. So when I wonder if I'm making the right choices in my life or when I'm paralyzed by all the doubts that come with trying to make something, I find myself thinking of the best ever death metal band out of Denton. Hail Satan. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our senior producer, Nick White. Thanks to our outgoing intern, Thomas Matisek, for all his work this semester. Good luck, Thomas. Interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by The Go Team. 
Our thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries Records. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast. The podcast features longer versions of each week's interviews. Be sure to go to BoatParty.biz if you'd like to join us for the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival. It's happening this September. Hey, so I've been talking about this in the credits every week. Um, Mark McGrath, I said some mean stuff about your cruise, and then you had to cancel your cruise, and I feel really bad about it. I'd like for you to come to BoatParty.biz on me. I'm disappointed that you haven't contacted me yet. It's easy to get a hold of me. My email address is jesse at maximumfun.org. I'd recommend putting Mark McGrath of Sugar Ray in the subject line so I don't miss it. But we would love to have you September 12th through 16th in the Caribbean. Again, this is on me. We'll even have a rock and roll trivia contest. I hear you're super, super, super good at that. Thanks, Mark. Anyway, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.